For our scripture reading this evening, we turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we're going to read the first 21 verses, 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, 
that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. We read that far in God's Word. Um, our text tonight includes verse 17. It's 16 and 17, although the focus certainly is 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as an applicatory service, it is fitting that we also at this same service look at the Word of God concerning the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you cannot have the death of our Lord Jesus Christ without His birth. And the connection between these two is brought out even in the text that we read, where Jesus Christ Himself makes reference to His death when He states that he must be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent. A reference, we know, to his being lifted up on the cross. But then there is also in this passage, by Jesus himself, a reference to his birth. And that, we know, is the reference where he teaches that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. If you ask when did God give His Son, it's not simply a reference to God giving His Son to the death of the cross, but giving His Son in the sending of Him and the sending of Him in His birth. We know that from Holy Scripture. There are an amazing number of texts in Scripture, like our texts, that declare this an essential part of the Gospel. The Gospel, namely, that God sent His Son, or God gave His Son, or similar language. One of those texts, Genesis 4, or Galatians 4, 4 and 5, teaches us that the means by which God sent His Son or gave His Son is His birth, His conception in birth. We read in that text that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son made of a woman. And if you ask, when was He made of a woman? I think even the children here know the answer. It's when He was conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to focus this Advent season on a number of these texts. They're fascinating, a fascinating aspect of the Gospel. We learn so much in them. For example, in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 in that chapter, we learn that God sent His Son made of a woman, which teaches us when and how God sent His Son in order to redeem us from the law. 
There's other passages, one very remarkably similar to the one that we consider tonight, that teaches us God sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And in the passage we consider tonight, we learn that God sent His Son to save the world. When I considered the various passages and the order that they should preach, this perhaps could be preached last because it really brings the final purpose of God sending His Son to our attention. God sent His Son to save the world. Other texts focus on us or various aspects of our salvation. And this would seem to be last, and yet I chose it first because this text significantly teaches us why God even sent His Son to be those other things. If you ask, why did God send His Son to be a propitiation? Why did God send His Son to redeem us from the law? Why did God send His Son in human nature? The answer is, according to our text, for God so loved the world that He sent His Son to save the world. Consider with me this text, God sent His Son, and the theme of this particular text, to save the world. We notice in the first place the work, the reality, the fact of that, and then secondly, the reason, and then finally, the result. The text that we consider tonight preaches and teaches an amazing work of God, amazing work of God with regard to us and for us. And that amazing work is that God sent His Son into the world and goes on to explain that the purpose of God sending His Son into the world is to save that world, and specifically save that over against condemning it. He came not to condemn the world, but to save it. That's the work of God, sending His Son to save the world. When we look at this particular Word of God, we focus in the first place on that very act of sending His Son. And we notice in the text that it sets forth that this is a work of God. Although there are other passages where Jesus speaks and talks about the Father sending Him and the Father giving Him, there are other passages that emphasize that God sent the Son. And those passages specifically emphasize the fact, the reality, that the sending of Jesus Christ is not simply a work of the first person of the Trinity, but all of the persons of the Trinity. It emphasizes the fact that this sending and this purpose in sending is the act and purpose of all the beings, all the persons in the being of God. 
It's not simply the desire of one, the desire of all. It's not simply the purpose of one, but the purpose of all the persons. And that has to be the case. Number one, because God is one. The the persons of the Trinity don't each have their own purpose, their own work, their own attitudes, their own what they want. They don't work independently, but they all work together, think together, and act together in the being of God. And that's especially true when one considers that the work that it mentions here is a work of salvation. God sent His Son to save. And one fundamental truth we must always understand is that all of the work of salvation is all of the work of the persons of the Trinity. It's not like one person does one part and another person does another part, although it's true that at various points and in various aspects of our salvation and its work, one or persons might be more prominent, that is, more easily visible. It is true that only the Son is crucified on the cross, and only the Son is incarnate, that is, born of the Virgin Mary. That's not true of the other persons, and yet they are all involved in that work. Even as we see in the conception and birth of Jesus in this sending of His Son, He is born of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Ghost. And it is the Father who is involved in His sending and His love for Him, and you see the same thing at the cross. So God, all the being, all of the persons, all of them, the entire being sends the Son into the world. It is important to insist on that and understand that because what we say here holds true for everything else. Whom God loves, the Father also loves, and the Son loves, and the Spirit loves. It's not like the Father loves one set of things and beings and the 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 Son another, and and, and the Holy Spirit yet a third set. But they all have the same object of love. They all have the same purpose in this sending. And they all engage in that work of sending the Son into the world. The other point of emphasis in this by the Holy Spirit is to impress upon us too that this is a deliberate act of God The sending of the Son into the world isn't an accident. It's not something that God does without forethought. It's not really even the case to say that God must send His Son and does send His Son because we require it and because we wanted it or we asked for it. The idea is that God and God alone and God in all three persons makes a decision, a conscious decision. God considers and weighs and then acts. And in that, God sends His Son. That is a good thought for us to remember when we consider the birth of Jesus Christ.
And all of this must be in our mind. One we may never forget what's emphasized here is that God sent His Son. God didn't make His Son, create His Son, but God sent His Son. And although this Son is conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, and we see Him in the manger as a little child, it is a Son who existed eternally, who existed long before He actually appears in the world. God sends a Son who already exists and lives. In this sending of the Son, a Son is told, go, and He goes. That's a, especially a point of emphasis in this particular book. You all know how this book begins. It, unlike all the other narratives of the birth of Jesus, mentions really nothing about the event itself, but rather focuses on the one who is born and tells us significantly, in the beginning was the Word. That is, in the beginning, at the creation, was the Word. He was there. And He was God, and He is with God. And it's this same Word by which God creates all things. That Word now, that One, is sent into the world. And it's that One that we find in the manger. This was essentially the message of the Old Testament. Only a look forward to that. It was the message that God so loved the world that He will send His Son. After that moment, the news is God so loved the world that He sent His Son. He gave His Son in the words of the text. It has been done. It's done even here as Jesus speaks even before He suffers and dies on the cross, God has already sent His Son. Now, there's a purpose. There's a reason for this decision. There's something else in the mind of God when He sends His Son. And that purpose in this particular text is that He might save the world. That's how you must read the text. That's the idea of the text. Even though the text mentions this, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, and it's talking there about those whom he saves with regard to persons, the idea of the text is that God so loved the world that God sent His Son into the world to save the world. And that's evident when, even though that's not stated explicitly, the following verses talk about what He did not come to do. And that is to condemn the world. And then, and then it is stated not to condemn the world, but that, through the, th that the world, through Him, 
might be saved. There it is made plain. The question for us is, what is that world? And the answer is that that world in which the text speaks is the world of this creation. It's the very world into which God sent His Son. That's the world. That is, it is the world of the heavens and earth that God has made. It is the world of space and time. It is the world of stars and of dirt, of earth and of sky, of rocks and of mountains. It is the world of fish and birds, of plants and animals. It is the world that we call the universe. And that's the exact word that's used. The word here is the word cosmos, a word that even in English we use to refer to the entire created universe that we know. This is the meaning of that very same word elsewhere, especially in the book of John. I limit myself to the book of John just to demonstrate that. In John 17, verse 5, we read that God or Jesus had glory before the world was. The word there clearly refers to the universe that was, the universe that came into being when God created it. Or chapter 17, verse 11, a few verses later, talks about the saints that are in the world. Remember Jesus praying for them. Them that are in the world and then they're taken out of the world or are not part of the world, which is what we read in John 8, verse 23. I am not of this world. That is, I am not of this universe. My origins, my place of source is not found in this universe. It's not found in the heavens and earth of this created being. I existed before that. It's the very same world into which Jesus was sent. The idea is that God so loved the world that God sent His Son into that world. And that, in case we miss it, is actually how it's stated in verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn it, to state it possibly, God sent His Son into the world. That's the world of the text. And this we may not overlook. This is easily overlooked. But this is an important, even an essential part of the entire gospel. In fact, I dare say if we have a gospel where God sends His Son just to save you and me, to save human beings, you have no gospel. You have nothing. The gospel is that God made a world. And God loves that world. And God saves that world through His Son. That's what's being done in this particular book. This is the wonder of the gospel according to John. This is why this gospel begins the way it does. Carefully. Very carefully with its opening words that are identical to those of Genesis 1. 
In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, John says, was the Word. And that Word created. And it's that creation, that world that God made that he now saves. This, you see, is the gospel that points us not only to Christ and his salvation, but points us to his ultimate goal and purpose, the salvation of the entire world. The entire world. Now, people are certainly included. People were in the creation. People were an important part of that creation. In fact, it's the very fact that people are at the center of that creation. They're part of the central purpose and history of that creation. Take human beings out of the world and it it loses its purpose. It loses any sense. It, no, they're a central part of the story. They're a central part of God's work of salvation. They're, they're there for a reason. So much is that true that the Bible also, therefore, can substitute the word persons or humans for world. But that's not the emphasis here. And at the same time, we must see it also means it includes people. And if you ask now which people, there are only two answers to that question. Either, either all the persons, every single one of those persons, because they live in this world, they're part of this world, or only some of those persons. And the text verily clearly teaches us some, not all head for head, which people are included in the world which God loves and for which he gives his Son. The answer of the text is, everyone who believes in him. Everyone who believes on him, and the idea is, and those only. Those are the only proper objects of God's love, those are the only proper objects of God sending His Son to save them. These are the very same persons that the Apostle will carefully explain in this very chapter are born again by the Spirit, whose being born again He likens to the wind blowing, where God is regenerating, where God is giving new birth, like the wind as it goes through. He refers to the fact that when the Spirit regenerates a person, He does so according to the will and choice of God. God determines who is born again and who is not. The world cannot be all human beings head for head according to the very text itself. Look at what we read. In verse 18 we read, there's some humans in the world who reject the Christ, and we read that they're even condemned already. Go ahead to the section we don't, didn't read, and we read, for example, in verse 36, it says that there are those who do not believe Jesus Christ and the wrath of God. 
Not his love, but his wrath abides on them. Such shall not live, but shall perish. There is nevertheless a reason, a twofold reason, why the Apostle, the Holy Spirit, uses the word world here and uses that word also to infer human beings. The first is so that we might not miss the important part of the gospel that God loves his world. He loves the world that he has made and so he will redeem it. But also with regard to the human beings, the persons, it emphasizes that persons are the real objects of God's love. There are real persons, real individuals, real persons like God has persons who think, who understand, who know, who speak, whom God loves and who will live while others perish. And to emphasize in the second place that the salvation of Jesus Christ is a universal salvation in the sense that no longer, as in the old, is salvation mainly for the Jews, but God will save the world of men. He will save men from all over the world, from all nations, tribes, and tongues, of all social classes, of all educational backgrounds, of those that the, word, the world may not even have a place for, those whom the world may not even think of. God will save in this world of men those perhaps we have no idea even exist. Wonderful, wonderful emphasis of Scripture whenever it refers to men as the world. We read that he's come to save the world and not condemn it. And that, you must see, is ultimately why the world cannot be every single human being head for head. If the world is all men without exception, every man, then the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that he sent, the gospel of his birth isn't good news at all, but frightening news. Because it means that God's saving love, because that's what we're talking about here, in his love God sent, and God sent to save. We're talking about God's saving love and His saving purpose and His saving intentions don't actually save. They don't actually result in eternal life for the objects of that love and the objects of that saving work of Christ. And if you ask, why then would they be saved? that is, those who are saved, as opposed to those that perish. There's only one answer. That answer is not the saving love of God, because God loves the whole world of men without exception, head for head. And God sent His Son to save that world of men, head for head, without exception. 
So why aren't they saved? Well, it's not the love and the will and the purpose of God. That's for sure. It's not even His Son. It's because the will of men is stronger than the will of God. The resistance of men is stronger than the power of the Spirit. And that, you see, cannot mean. In fact, this explains the emphasis of the text upon God's creation and the salvation of the world in Christ. It's an amazing thing this text is. There's a reason why this text the Reformed will not allow to be wrested away from our grasp by the Arminians. And why we do not fear this text but love it why it is the text that's quoted second in the Canons of Dort, second head, or first head, second article. Why is that? Because it's the text that emphasizes that the Creator and the Savior are the same person. The Word is Jesus, and that Word is the Creator. And that Word is the one sent into the world to save. The same One. And it's exactly because He's the Creator of the universe that He is the Savior of the universe. You see, how little our understanding of salvation is, even when it comes to salvation, we get very individualistic and very selfish thinking. God. Jesus was sent to save me, or he was sent to save humans, or certain humans. And that's all we can think of. And no, no. It's true. God loves us. And God sent his son to save us. There should be no doubt about that after this morning. But God loves his world. This world, God loves. And this world, God saves. And he saves it by the same one who created it. And this teaches us a lot about God's creation of the world, even. Another point of emphasis in the book of John and elsewhere in Scripture, God's purpose was never Adam and Eve. No, when God created the first Adam, he already had in mind the second. We are informed in the book of Romans. In fact, the first Adam came in order that we might have the second. This text tells us that. The idea of the text is not this, that all of a sudden when time and history gets to Joseph and Mary, God looks around and says, what do I do? Oh, this is a good time to send my son. I see now what I must do. It's not even that God did this in the beginning. That Adam and Eve came along and frustrated all of God's plans and He says, hmm, now what do I do? What do I do? Oh, I know. I'll send my Son. No. No. God created the world in His love. And created that world in His love with the understanding and purpose of sending His Son. That's the amazing thing here. That's the thing that we miss. That's why we glory in this text. It's not about us. 
That's why we read in Scripture this. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, 16. For all things were made by him and for him. They weren't made for you. They weren't made for me. And you're not really even saved for you. You are saved for him. God so loved the world that he saved, that he sent. Now the opposite is to condemn. Does not mean no persons will be condemned. Notice the opposition there. Notice how they're placed over against each other. Salvation and condemnation. One is either saved or one is condemned. And if one is saved, he is not condemned. And if he's condemned, he is not saved. Those are opposites. Polar opposites. And notice that's attached to the intention of God. It's not like God sits back to see who it is who will be condemned and who will be saved. But the condemnation and salvation is that which arises out of the very purpose of God. Now let's consider the reason for all this. And we're told it's because God so loved the world. This is the very heart of the text, why I picked it to begin first. This is amazing. It's often overlooked because this is also a text that contains the very gospel. That's why it's quoted That's why it's quoted in the Canons Head 1, Article 2, because it contains the gospel that whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's brought back up again in the Canons Head 2, Article 5. It's the very heart of the gospel. It's the, the center. It's the content of the gospel. But the real heart of it is the reason why. And that's the part that's emphasized in the Canons Head 1, Article 2. It is the love of God that explains it all. What explains the sending of Christ is not your sin or my sin. That's the amazing thing. Oh, I know it pertains to sin, and I know He comes to save. No, it's the love of God. So we need to consider that. What is the love of God? Well, first of all, you have to understand that the love of God is that whereby He regards someone as dear and precious to Himself. He regards them highly. We struggle with words to describe what it means to love someone, but it always begins there. It has to do with your attitude toward them. You you delight in them. You joy in them. They, you only think good of them. That's love, but we know love is more. It's to desire their good and their welfare. And here is where our love is often limited. We may desire the best for someone, the highest good, and we know that love doesn't simply desire it and say, I wish you things and I want good things and I hope good things, but 
real love works at it. <clears throat> the husband who truly loves his wife not only thinks highly of her, desires her, sees her as precious, as a wonderful, wonderful gift, and not only desires her good, her highest good, not just some good, but the highest. He would give her the world if he could, but he works at it. Doesn't work for himself. Doesn't work for really anything else. He has an object of his love, and he, he gives himself to, to accomplish that. That's why he's working. That's why he's laboring. That's why he spends time with her. That's why he does what he does. It's all about her and not himself. It's about her. And there we fail, right? We may want many things for our children and for our, our wife, but we're powerless to affect them, to actually accomplish them, to work them. We, we can have a loved one who's suffering in pain and affliction, and our heart aches for them. We want to do everything we can do, and everything we can do just isn't enough. Well, that's not God. You see, the love of God is these things toward us. But there's a couple things here that really need to be emphasized. First of all, that God would consider us precious. An amazing thing all by itself, that God would consider human beings precious. I suppose we could understand we're precious because like all His creation, there's a, there's a certain thing there. God has made us. and. And so God regards us with a certain love, I guess, because He made us, but there's more here. You don't talk about loving, really, rocks and stones as such. There's something there about the text. God loves the world in part because the human beings He loves are in the heart and center of this creation. It's their home. It's their place. But God delights the highest good, and that highest good isn't to have the creation, that's what we often think. Wow, the highest good is to live in this creation without sin, without fear, without war. What a wonderful thing that would be, but that's not the highest good. I dare say that if we could conceive of a new creation with no sin and everything in it wonderful and perfect, we can go back to Eden, let's say, you would not have the highest good if God were not there. Because the highest good is God. God is the highest good. And so the love of God is that He desires that we have Him. That's the highest good. That's why you cannot separate the love of God and His salvation. That's why you cannot have it that God loves someone whom He does not save. Because it's the love of God that desires that they have Him. Not simply that they be saved by Him. Not just simply that they be delivered by Him. Not simply that He's some sort of vending machine or tool that accomplishes something. But the highest good for them is God. That's it. And then God accomplishes that. The love of God is that which He sends His Son. And His Son doesn't simply save in the sense that He works something that then allows this to happen, but it's really all one thing. God coming and delivering us from our sins and the guilt and shame of our sin, it, 
It's why it's termed the way it is in the text, everlasting life. Notice that in the text, will you please, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but should be saved. That's the word you expect. That's the word that you might use or I might use, but it's have everlasting life. Do you see how that connects with the love of God? Do you see how it ties all together. Briefly this, the world has become guilty before God, and in its guilt to be cast away from God, not just condemned, but cast away, torn away from Him, never to see Him, never to be with Him, to be cut off from the highest good. That means to have the highest evil, the worst. Not life, but death. But God loves this world that became this way. And this world is polluted. This world is wicked. This world is against God. Notice that little word, will you please? God so loved the world. doesn't just simply say God loved the world, but God so loved the world. You say, so, so what? So, so what do you mean? Well, let's look at that world now. The world God made and created in His love has become a world of darkness, a world that hates God, a world that shakes its fist at God, a world that will create, the world that will kill His Son, crucify Him, a, a world where even the animal world doesn't reflect their original creation, the beasts eating one another. The world is polluted, not just polluted by the sin, but it's polluted. Man pollutes it. Man uses it. Man abuses it. And God still loves that world, even as He still loves the human beings He loved who became polluted and filled with sin. And all of it is worthy of death. All of it, in fact, will experience that death in a form, a fashion. The world is dying. It is under the curse of death. We see it all around. It is not really living but dying, even as we are not really living but dying. But that world, that world of hatred and enmity against God, that world of violence, that world of war and rumor of war, God loves. And yet, that's the idea of the soul. And yet, and yet, God loves. He so loves. That's the thing we need to remember. When we think about Christ and His sending, when we even think about the Lord's table and the crucified body and the shed blood, the Bible always directs us deeper and deeper. And it always brings us back to the love of God. Even when we get to election, that's the amazing thing. Even when we think we've arrived at the source of all things, that God chose us in eternity. That's a truth the Bible teaches over and over again. It sets the love of God first before that. Whom He foreknow, those He also did predestinate. That's who He predestinated. Those whom He knew. That is, those whom He loved. And then there is the expression of that love, 
the greatness of that love, and you can see it not only in the object of that love, the one that he loves, but what now that love requires. We may say that it's necessary to God send His Son from the perspective that somehow we obligated God to do that, or it's naturally necessary. And yet, you understand, it is necessary for God to send His Son. That's the soul of the love. You see, when God sets His affection on someone, when God decides to love someone, when God gives Himself to someone, then in whatever state they are, whatever sinful state they are, even under his own condemnation, God being what he is and who he is, he will save them. You see, it's the love of God that necessitates the sending of his Son. And then look at the sending of his Son. You want to know about the love of God? Let's look at that too. There will be other texts that we get the chance to think about this a little bit more, but He's going to send His Son through the womb of a woman. He's going to send His Son into the world, and He's not going to choose sending Him to live like a king and a prince, though He is a king and a prince. He's not going to send His Son into a church that loves and embraces Him at all, even when there are believers. He's going to send his son, and the disciples he has seem to be just as ignorant as everybody else at times. Their love is fickle. They can't even stay awake for a couple of hours to keep him company in his agony. And at the cross, his moment of greatest crisis, they all run, ashamed, worried about their own skin. And That's God's sending of His Son. What's the result of all this? Is the result that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that there's um, some saved who decide that they will be saved and not reject the Savior, and and so uh, God so loved the world, and God so loved to save all of the human race and, 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 and to save it all and, and, and then is frustrated in the end, man, I really, really wanted to do more, but these people wouldn't let me. They, they got in my way. They, they stymied me. Is that the result? Might be the result if we're talking about you and me. No, the result is God accomplishes His purpose, His loving purpose. That world that God loves is saved. Every single object of God's love, not one is left behind, not one is lost, not one, in the words of the text itself, is condemned, is lost, perishes. But all of them All of the objects of God's love, all of the world that He loves, all of them who believe in Him have everlasting life. Notice how it's put there. They have it. 
They have it already now. You see that love of God, the result of it even now. It's not like we have to wait. We can see that love of God now. How do you, how do you see it? Well, number one, there's people being born again. There's a spirit that's blowing through the world where God sends it. And that spirit is regenerating and giving birth new life an everlasting life, this very eternal life that Jesus is speaking about to Nicodemus, is sanctifying those who are unholy, making alive those who are dead. There it is. And it's there in the preaching of the Gospel. It is affected by the Gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. There it is again. This Word is here. This Word is operative. This Word is bringing to pass everything that God has purposed in His love. But oh yes, there's more. Just like someday you and I will go into the grave, the world will collapse. It has a lifespan. It is not naturally eternal. It is not naturally everlasting, though it may seem so. It comes to an end. It gasps its last breath, and the stars fall from the sky, and the elements melt with a fervent heat, and it ends in a pile of ashes. And then the love of God goes to work, goes to work on all the saints whom he loves all those who believed in him, and he raises them from the dead, and he takes this world that he loves, and he brings it to everlasting perfection. And it's life, life with him, life in him. It is life with the highest good. That's what God affects. That's what God works. That's the gospel of Christmas. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, may we reflect in this season upon Thy love, Thy great love, a powerful love, far more powerful than the will of men, far more powerful than the desires of men, a love that saves and redeems not only us, but this entire creation that even now groans and travails. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.